6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 13 through 16. Well, let's jump in. We're reviewing... The book of 2 Chronicles, and we're going to look at uh, chapters 13 through 16 in this session. And uh, obviously the monarchy, if you remember from our timeline and learn the Bible in 24 hours, um, we obviously uh, are in this period uh, of the monarchy from Saul, David, Solomon, and then the civil war under Rehoboam, which split the two parts of the, of the nation. The northern kingdom uh, that we're not focusing on, uh, book of Samuel and Kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, really chronicles that as a historical period. We are looking at the uh, books of Chronicles. 1st Chronicles corresponding really pretty much to 2nd Samuel. 2nd Chronicles taking it from Solomon to the Babylonian captivity with a focus on the southern kingdom. And also written from the point of view of the priests, the Levites, or as some writers would look at it as God's point of view. First um, and Second Samuel, First Second Kings, being a historical perspective, but Chronicles giving us a spiritual perspective. Very selective; it highlights certain things, leaves out other things. So, uh, and we're right in the early part of that. So, uh, in uh, First Chronicles, we have the genealogies from Adam all the way to the uh, end of the exile. We had focused on the reign of David. For, a chapter, for the next 19 chapters. In 2 Chronicles, we have the reign of Solomon for the first nine chapters. And now we're in a series of what you'd call the Davidic dynasty. The northern kingdom had 19 different kings, and they were not a single dynasty, in fact, uh, half a dozen of them. Um, but the southern kingdom was a continual, although it had some dismal kings in that lineup, Nevertheless, it, does, uh, it is the Messianic line, it is the Davidic line, and the critical one from a spiritual point of view. So we're looking through the Davidic dynasty. A couple of the things we talked about in recent sessions, just to remind you, um, we talked about the Ethiopian legend incident to the uh, Queen of Sheba's visit, and uh, this uh, claim that they have in Ethiopia to be descendants from Solomon is... is actually part of their constitution, based on a visit of Queen of Sheba and Solomon, which presumably bore a son by the name of Menelik. Uh, and uh, he, when he was grown, he visited his father, and uh, who anointed him to rule Africa, and sent sons of his own counselors to assist him as king, so far possible. But the young men were reluctant to leave the famous temple, presumably, as it contained the Ark of the Covenant. And the legend part, for sure, is, I mean, the part that's a legend for sure, rather than actuality, is that they removed the Ark of the Covenant, took it with them, left a replica. Now this is a, a legend that they cling to in Ethiopia to this day, and uh, it's, it, uh, 
this, is that the ark is still being preserved to this day in Axum. There's a whole history here. We're going to get into all of this when we get to first, uh, correction, Second Chronicles chapter 35. And uh, so this is like background from the Queen of Sheba visit. And uh, all of this uh, really dates from the 13th century, not that far back. And uh, it was uh, contrived, we believe, uh, to link the kings of Ethiopia to Solomon. And it is actually part, it tra tracks all the way to Haile Selassie uh, up to 1975. And it's actually put in the Constitution, even though it's provably non-biblical. And because most people that study this recognize that the legend that they cling to is not biblical, they tend to dismiss the possibility to actually have the ark. They're overlooking some things that we'll talk about when we get to Second Chronicles 35. And so the ark was around long after Solomon, so that all falls apart. And we'll talk more about that when we get to 35. The other thing that came up was Tarshish, which you encounter frequently in the scriptures. All we know, it was a distant port from which silver, iron, tin, lead, ivory, monkeys, and peacocks were brought to Israel because they referenced in 1 Kings, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and elsewhere. The word itself is, comes from, uh, linguistically means to be smelted. And uh, we know from Herodotus that it, uh, the Tarshish was beyond the pillars of Hercules. That's outside the Mediterranean. And uh, they had strong ships capable of very long voyages, two, three-year voyages in the records. There's also a thing, a records of a Britannia metal. Tarshish was an island uh, which was, among other things, a source of tin. Britannia metal was an alloy. 93% tin, 5% antimony, 2% copper, which made it very useful for utensils of all kinds, and it was uh, 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 shipped, uh, traded all over the world for candlesticks, drinking vessels, what have you. And it's similar to pewter. You and I would mistake it probably for pewter if we saw it. A little, uh, a little harder, stronger, easier to work with than other alloys. And uh, there was a globe. We know archaeologically there was global commerce from Britain, uh, even as early as Stonehenge, 1500 BC. And it was exported to Europe from, in large quantities from Cornwall, England, and during the Roman period. So that means. Uh, so um, um, the Britannia metal then is one of the reasons that some people strongly suspect that Tarshish was the British Isles. And that also would jibe for, with a lot of other things. It will come up frequently. For purposes of our biblical studies, it clearly is a major port as far away as they could imagine. And so that, that's sort of the way it's used idiomatically from a great distance. That's where Jonah tried to flee to when he was trying to evade his commitments. Well, speaking of uh, Solomon's wrapping it up from past, his rule extended from the Euphrates River to Egypt's border. And uh, his incredible wealth, Solomon's was through his trading expertise. And uh, his, but however, his um, kingdom did not fulfill the Abrahamic covenant for a number of technical reasons. Some people feel it did. That's, that can be punctured. Um, now, Jeroboam was formerly the former foreman of labor in Ephraim, uh, in which Shechem was located. And uh, uh, when he heard that Solomon had died, he returned from Egypt where he'd fled. And uh, by popular demand, he headed up a delegation to appeal to the, then the successor, Rehoboam, to lighten their load of labor and taxation and so forth. 
And Rehoboam asked for three days to consider. Rehoboam didn't listen to his elderly advisors. The young men there said, raise the taxes more than ever. And that, that, that foolish taxation uh, uh, decision by Rehoboam is what virtually forced the civil war and the split of the kingdom. Jeroboam taking the northern tribes under his leadership, Rehoboam retaining the south. We also talked a lot about the so-called lost ten tribes, this myth that continues to float through literature, which is non-biblical. Um, the southern kingdom consisted of Judah. Simeon was absorbed into Judah. Benjamin, and uh, actually Jerusalem is technically in Benjamin, by the way. Most people don't realize that. On the northern kingdom, of course, we have Ephraim, Manasseh, Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun, Gad, and Reuben. And uh, we have the, uh, uh, the Levites, however, oh, and also Dan. And then the Levites, however, fled the northern kingdom, as we read in Second Chronicles 11, uh, that um, because uh, the northern kingdom went to idolatry, the Levites were kicked out and disenfranchised, so they obviously went south where they were honored by the temple worship that was continued, of course, the southern kingdom. But the point I want to make that everybody overlooks is if, if the northern tribes were lost, where are the ten of them? You see, you've got four of them accounted for in the south if you even use the simplistic view. So that's obviously the real issue, of course, is that these terms are used geographically rather than ethnically because the faithful from all those tribes migrated southward. And the ones that in the south that preferred to go idol worship went up where it was politically correct. So there was a commingling of people ethnically, but the geography stays the same. There's an area called Ephraim, there's an area called Naphtali, etc. So let's, don't, let, don't let that confuse our studies. And uh, Jeroboam ruled the northern kingdom from his capital in Samaria. That's why Samaria becomes synonymous with the northern kingdom as their capital. And uh, he turned it to idolatry for a lot of reasons. And so the, those that uh, wanted to remain faithful migrated south to Rehoboam. And uh, so the, obviously the, the, uh, the uh, Levites went south. Those that favored idolatry would migrate north. And uh, now another thing that comes out of these things that we talked about before, and I decided to include them in my little opening review here, is that the, there, there are terms, some people try to make a, dis, uh, a distinction between the terms Jew and Israelite. And when you hear that, it doesn't seem so on the surface, but that is a prelude to um, anti-Semitism. After the Babylonian captivity, the terms Jew and Israelite are used interchangeably. The Jew does not mean just from Judah, etc. Some would try to draw those distinctions, and that will lead you to some, it, it's not obvious, but that will lead you to some very bizarre theology. Ezra, the book of Ezra, calls the returning remnant Jews eight times, Israel 40 times. He uses the terms interchangeably. In fact, he refers to them as all Israel, as in terms of the nation. The term Israel is used connotatively for the entire nation, not just to the northern kingdom, except under special conditions. Nehemiah does the same thing. Jews 11 times, calls them Israel 22 times, all Israel being back in the land. Nehemiah 12, 47 and others. Malachi, just to give you another thing speaks of the returning remnant as the nation in total. Now, in, in, the, uh, the, uh, in the New Testament, Anna knew her tribal identity. She was not lost. She was a tribe of Asher. Knew, knew she was in Luke chapter 2. Paul knew that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He also refers to himself both as a Jew 
and as an Israelite, both. He uses the terms interchangeably. And the New Testament uses Israel 75 times in 73 verses, referring to the nation Israel, the term Jew 174 times. At the Feast of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter cries, Ye men of Judea, ye men of Israel. He uses both terms. Um, using the term Judea geographically and the term men of Israel uh, connotatively for the entire nation. All the house of Israel. All these terms are used by Peter from verse 14 to 8 to 30. So right in the book of Acts chapter 2. In any case, in the dry bones vision of Ezekiel 36 and 37, that we're going to be hearing a lot more about in recent days, because almost most scholars begin to realize that we're, all, we're close to Ezekiel 38. So you'll be hearing more about this all along. But the dry bones vision declares that Judah, that is the Jews, if spice to some, and Israel, the ten tribes, shall be joined as one in the regathering, and so identifies it. So it's an academic argument. And this is happening today. The total physical descendants were not the people to whom the promises were made. I'm talking about spiritualism, the ones there in faith. So, okay. The Davidic dynasty. We've gotten through Solomon, the civil war to Rehoboam. This is a list of the kings of the southern kingdom, the one we're really focusing on, because that's the one that will endure. That's the one that God, and that, not because they deserve it, but because God made that commitment to David. The northern kingdom will go from bad to worse and disappear from history. The northern kingdom had five, well, they had ten kings that you'd consider good kings and five that you'd consider outstanding. So they had out, out of the whole list. But there are some pretty dismal characters we're going to encounter. And uh, so what we're going to look at tonight are Abijah and Asa from uh, chapters 13 and then 14 through 16. And uh, that's, our, that's our target for this session. So chapter 13, King Abijah, starting at verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, that's the king up north, began Abijah to reign over Judah, the kingdom of the south. And he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. You're, obviously, the north and the south are going to have a lot of entanglements, sometimes warfare, sometimes even becoming partners. But even the, apartment, uh, uh, the, the uh, partnerships were pretty ill-considered. The word Abijah, Yahweh, Yehovah, Yod, yod -He -Vav -He is my father the one whose will is that of God. He is sometimes rendered in kings slightly different, Abijam, but that won't concern us here too much. Abijah, ha what makes a lot of this confusing if you're just reading the Bible casually is that it's the name of seven or more men by that same name and two women of the Old Testament carry that name. So that makes that can make your casual reading a little confusing. Um, one Abijah is the son and successor of Rehoboam, king of Judah. That's the one we're interested in tonight. And, uh, but there, up north, Jeroboam, the rival king up north, he had a son that he named Abijah. He alone of Jeroboam's house did some, some good thing was found toward the Lord God of Israel, as it says. Therefore, he alone was permitted to go down to the grave in peace in 1 Kings 14. Abijah is also the name of a priest, and uh, of the 24 courses that went into captivity, only four returned in the book of Ezra. And those four then were reapportioned among the 24 to, to fit the uh, 24 uh, courses of David that we talked about before. 
And one of those, of course, called the course of Abijah, is the one that Zacharias, Father John the Baptist, was part of. But Abijah is also the name of a, the son of Benjamin, also one of the sons of Prophet uh, Samuel, and uh, also one of the captains that David appointed the priestly courses. And so uh, uh, there, this, this can cause confusing if you take it superficially. There's also a priest in Nehemiah's time who sealed the covenant. Then there's two gals, the wife of Ahaz, the, uh, who was the mother of Hezekiah, who's a good guy. Perhaps a descendant of Zechariah slain between the temple and the altar. It could be. They may fit that. That's the, some guess about that. But. And the wife of Judah's grandson, Hezron, were named. So there's, you've got a lot of confusion about that word Abijah. It be recognized as a common thing. There, it, you, you don't have to remember all this, but you may encounter, if you're doing some studies, a lot of confusion about the concerning Abijah's mother. For someone that's looking to... Um, uh, find discrepancies in the scripture, they love to jump on this because the ones, on the one hand she's said to be Makkah, uh, the, the daughter of Absalom. More than 50 years elapsed between the adolescence of Absalom and the accession of Rehoboam and suddenly she may have been Absalom's granddaughter and Makkah, the daughter of Absalom, was the mother of Asa. So the same name appears in these areas and could create problems if you assume they're all the same person. They're obviously not. And uh, we're explicitly, explicitly told that Absalom had three sons and one daughter in one case. It's infer inferred that the three sons died young because Absalom, before his death, built him a monument because he had no son. Well, that's not a discrepancy. They apparently had died, so he had none surviving. And then the daughter was distinguished for her beauty, but her name was Tamar, not Makkah. And uh, finally, the narrative tells us that the name of Elijah's mother was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel Gibeah. All these things seem to conflict if the name is supposed to refer to the same person. Tamar, the daughter of Absalom, married Uriel of Gibeah. Their daughter was Makkah, named for her great-grandmother. And uh, Makkah also married Rehoboam, the parties being second cousins on the father's side. So these obviously aren't issues that need concern us except to realize the so-called discrepancies really arrive because there's, the, the, these are really in pairs, if you will. And uh, so, see, Abijah's accession... Um, his mother held court as influential position of the king's mother, and she was so strong that she continued to hold it after a brief reign. Abijah was then uh, succeeded by Asa, who we'll look at, though it was a position from which Asa had the authority to depose her, as you'll see what he does there. So don't, if you encounter some of these uh, quibbles, recognize that in the conservative scholarship there's plenty of ways to deal with these. They're, they're really not fatal kinds of problems. Okay, Second Chronicles 13, verse 3. And Abijah set the battle in array with an army of valiant men of war, even 400,000 chosen men. Jeroboam also set the battle array against him with 800,000 chosen men, being mighty men of valor. These are huge, huge battles. And Abijah stood up upon Mount Zermarim, which is in Mount Ephraim, that's in the northern area, and said, Hear me, thou Jeroboam and all Israel. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over to Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? Covenant of salt is a term suggesting durability. It shows up in Leviticus 2 and Numbers 18 and elsewhere, used that way. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against his Lord. 
And there are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, who have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and tenderhearted and could not withstand them. And now ye think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, and ye be a great multitude, and there are with you golden calves, which Jeroboam made you for gods. Have ye not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and have made you priests after the manner of the nations of other lands? Obviously, you see, they were in paganism up there. So that whosoever cometh to consecrate himself with a young bullock or seven rams, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods. So this is Abijah really challenging these people very scripturally. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him, and the priests which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business. And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense, the showbread also set they in order upon the pure table, and the lampstand of gold with the lamps thereof, to burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but ye have forsaken him. He's really presenting an indictment to his enemies here. And behold, God himself is with us for our captain for his priests, and his priests with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you. O children of Israel, fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for ye shall not prosper. But Jeroboam caused an ambushment to come about behind them. So they were before Judah, and the ambushment was behind them. In other words, he's got them surrounded. You got twice as many guys out there. And when Judah looked back, and behold, the battle was before and behind, and they cried unto the Lord... And the priests sounded with the trumpets. Then the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before. When it says Israel, children of Israel here, it's speaking of the northern kingdom. It's using the term denotatively to refer to the northern kingdom. And the children of Israel fled before Judah. And God delivered them into their hand. And Abijah's people slew with them with a great slaughter. So there fell down slain of Israel, the northern kingdom, 500,000 chosen men. Wow. Thus the children of Israel were brought under at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied upon the Lord God of their fathers. That's an editorial comment inserted by the chronicler. We'll notice that occurring in a number of places, key places. And Abijah pursued after Jeroboam, and took cities from him, Bethel, and with the towns thereof, and Jeshana, and the towns thereof, and Ephraim, with the towns thereof. So Israel retreated, and that left Judah to occupy Bethel, and that's one of the places where Jeroboam had set up a golden calf. There were two of those, one there and one in Dan. And Jeshana, which is about four miles south of Shiloh, and Ephraim, which is about four miles northeast of Bethel. So these, these were traditionally northern cities, but now the southern kingdom had successfully captured them. Neither did Jeroboam recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. But Abijah waxed mighty and married fourteen wives, and begot twenty and two sons and sixteen daughters. Now don't say because he did it, it's good. That was, that's, that's a defect. That was something he was, that the Torah prohibited. But obviously, 
David, Solomon, many of the kings um, uh, did that anyway, and it was the custom, but it was not it was not authorized in the Torah. And the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways and his sayings are written in the story of the prophet Edo, which is one of the lost sources, of course. So he began his three years reign with a strenuous but unsuccessful effort to try to bring the northern tribes to their allegiance. Big battle. They won the battle, but they didn't succeed in, in reuniting the empire. And uh, 500,000 of the army of the north perished in the field. And yet, uh, 1 Kings also records that he walked in all the sins of his fathers. Father Rehoboam was not sharp. Pretty naive, made a lot of mistakes. And Abijah did too. The book of Kings will record that. The book of Chronicles doesn't dwell on it. It really highlights his success and moves on. So let's go to chapter 14. He's succeeded by King Asa, who is one of the five outstanding of the, uh, of the, the 20 in the south. And uh, we, we're going to see revival. Asa is one of the five kings whom God used to bring revival to the southern kingdom. We want to understand this. We understand what are the conditions that make revival possible. Just having a good leader is not enough, as we'll see. There has to be some other things. We want to understand that, because we all aspire to having a revival in our country. What will it take? And uh, the northern kingdom never had a revival among their 19 kings. And all of their 19 kings in the north are bad. When, if you go through 1st, 2nd king, 1st, you go through the whole history of the northern kingdom, they go from bad to worse. Although, some of them uh, would have to, you know, you say, who had the worst kings, north or south? There's several that on both sides that would make the final uh, exam on that one. Southern kingdom had 20 kings. Ten of them could be called good. Five were outstanding. So you want to remember their names. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. We're going to talk a little bit about each one of those because they are not only just good guys, they were outstanding in the south. Not outstanding enough to prevent the south from going into captivity because they're, 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 the, the northern kingdom is on a downward trend going from bad to worse. The southern thing goes down, up a little bit with one of these good kings from time to time. The overall still is so far down that they, God puts them into captivity. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Second Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music